My name is Dave Brandt, and I'll be reading scripture today from 1 Samuel 10, the entire chapter. 1 Samuel 10, and that's in your worship guide uh, notes. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people of Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you departed from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three goats, one carrying three loaves of bread, and the other carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, and there is a garrison where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre, before them prophesying. prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all of these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb. A proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To see the donkeys. And when he saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But another matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord of Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities, all your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clans of the Matriarchs was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, 
He has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than all of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel said to sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. There may be no other truth more important than you and me as Christians understanding that God is king. And for our children sitting here, that might be something that they're just trying to understand. What does it mean he's king? What does his kingship look like? For moms and dads or grandmas or grandpas or just all the adults in this room, knowing God is king is a lifelong journey. That he is the one alone who can redeem us. We do not have power to save ourselves. That our citizenship is connected to God alone. We might live in this country or you might have come from another country or God may send you to another country in due course. Several people here have lived in other places around this world for seasons or for times. They were always citizens of God's kingdom. And certainly it means service. When the king makes a commandment, we serve him. It's hard to know what that looks like at a deep personal level. Even this morning, certainly, probably across the board, everybody comes in here with at least one burden that is tugging on you. That you woke up this morning or shaving or brushing your teeth, eating your breakfast, and that worry comes to mind. And what's it look like to say, you are king over that, Lord. I will trust you in your sovereign providence over all things. Nothing has helped me more in my own understanding of the kingship of God is connecting the dots between the God who created all things. And just look at God's creation. Last week, my family and I got to spend time in northern Wisconsin. Besides the fact that there's lots of mosquitoes and lots of Packer fans, I was blown away by how beautiful the, the thick woods were. And just to think, this God made every little leaf and every little bird singing his praises in the trees. But what's it look like then to know that the God who created this world that's beyond our imagination, at the same time sustains it, including you and me. That is hard, because we like this doctrine of creation, but this doctrine of providence, that he's the one who provides all things. Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to believe that you are king. With whatever that worry is that you and I bring this morning, as we sing songs about the king of kings, I, uh, had, I've, I've shared with you before our own story when we spent three years in Great Britain and I went through a graduate program 
And I remember the day I had what's called the viva. It's a Latin word which literally comes from the gladiatorial games. You've seen the movie Gladiator, not a PG movie. It was, the, the, the Caesar is asked, thumbs up, live, or thumbs down. That's literally what they call the last test of the PhD program in the UK. That's kind of a scary name. And I remember that day, May 6, 2005. I couldn't eat the entire day before, and that's saying a lot for a big guy. And I certainly couldn't eat the morning of. I couldn't even get water in my throat. I was so nervous. And I walked over to the East Sands there on the shores of Scotland, and I looked at this big ocean. I'm like, Lord, I think I've done all I can do. I am more than a little intimidated by the fact the way the Bible works is an expert in Europe on your topic flies in to examine you. It was a professor from the University of Durham. And you wear your tie and your sport coat and you show up. And I had my Viva and I passed. And I don't remember a word he said once he said, you passed. I think I heard angels singing and my stomach growling. But as I walked with my wife and three-month-old son to a friend's house for a little gathering, as we're walking through Old St. Andrews, right where they had the golf tournament just a few weeks ago, I said to my wife, I feel this strange sense that as much as this is a major accomplishment, that it is loaded with the grace of the king. The fact that scores of people applied to study with this one supervisor and he picked three and one of them came from Rockford, Illinois. The fact that literally five minutes after I found out that $20,000 we thought was going to come to help support us, literally five minutes later in a way that reminded me God is king and I am not, I got a job offer that covered all our living expenses for all three years, including food and utilities. I went, we went through a long process of infertility and beyond what the doctors thought they could do, and I'm walking with a three-month-old son. Probably already weighed 70 pounds at that point, but that's besides. <laughs> I'm walking with this three-month-old little boy that just felt like grace. Then I go to this viva. I even remember the day before, I'm standing by the butcher shop, always in awe of hanging haggis sitting there. And I see my supervisor, and he goes, oh, have I told you about what to do in your viva? Because you need to know this. I'm like, no, you could have let me know ahead of time. I'm glad I bumped into you at the meat market. Like literally all those details, I, I said to my wife, God has had his hand in every step of the way. And I felt this weird emotion of, I should feel this sense of great accomplishment, but I actually felt like worshiping. I should feel this sense of this great accomplishment that I've accomplished, but I just knew that there were way too many things that were totally out of my control that God had to do, and I just had to say, it is of the Lord. I couldn't claim it and stick it to myself because I knew it was his providence. 
Now, that doesn't answer every question because sometimes God just says no or not yet. But even then, he's being king, sovereign over all things. In the same way that scriptures teach us from the stories of other men and women to see the providence of the king. Vera set it up beautifully for us as she teaches our kids, but really all of us, about the context leading up to 1 Samuel 10. Dave read it for us. This is when the king is anointed. But even here, when Samuel's going to tell Saul that he's going to be king, it's framed in such a way that Saul and arguably Israel, and even just as importantly you and me, should see the actual true king the whole time has been God. Well, let's pray. Let's pray before we look at this text and see what the Lord has to teach us about his kingship, not only over Israel and the old covenant, but over you and me in the new covenant. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we may see the wondrous things in your law. And Father, all of us in some way, but maybe some of us in particular, need this morning to be reminded, to be strengthened in the truth that you are king. And you are not just king over the cosmic things that seem beyond our pay grade. You are the king of the coffee we drank this morning. And the bill sitting on our desk and the doctor's visit coming this week. Or the kid living in our home. Or the marriage struggling in this moment. Or the burden deep inside me that Nobody else can see. You are king over all those things. Just like you're the king of every bird that flies in the air and every hair on our heads, so every issue in our life, you are king. Help us to see beautifully from a text that shouts that, that you are king over us and all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Samuel took a flask of oil, verse 1, and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? That may have been a shock to Samuel. As you'll find out later, it's not something he felt like he could do, and honestly, rightly so. But notice that first verse and that word prince. It doesn't say king. Pastor Kurt was right to point out that word back in the last chapter, if you remember from a few weeks ago. God is particular with his choice of words. He didn't give him the title king. He didn't. He gave him the title prince. That's not a, that's not a typo or a translation issue. The Hebrew word for king is melech. That is not that word. That's the word vice-regent. The word regent might sound strange. Vice-king, supportive king, temporary, interim. But you know the word vice because we have a vice president. And what is the vice president supposed to do? Well, fill in or do what's assigned by the president. But they're not the president. They're the vice president. A vice-regent is a person who acts in place of a ruler, a governor, or a sovereign. A person who acts in place of the king. See, God couldn't give them the king because the office was already filled. He's the king. So notice how the text is, in a sense, giving them what they wanted, 
as God will say, you're rejecting me as king, but he can't give them the king because he's the king. He can just give them a vice king. A prince. Notice how the end of verse 1, which is a lengthy verse, frames it. And this shall be the sign to you, we'll talk about that in a minute, that the Lord has anointed you to be prince, there's that word again, so in case you missed it the first time, there it is again, over his heritage. You see, it's still the Lord's heritage. It still belongs to God. He's just letting this vice president step in. But he's still the king. So notice how the text is teaching us to rightly see God even in relationship to any other human ruler. Like it's already teaching us there's really only one king. There's vice kings all over this world, good ones and bad ones, ones that we may even vote for in our democratic system. But there really is only one king, only one true president, capital P, and that's God. And to prove it, the end of verse 1 says that God is going to show you some signs. So literally God's like, here's the deal. I'm going to make you the prince, the vice king, the vice regent. And I'm going to prove it to you with three signs. I'm going to show you that I am the one who is going to be the king, so much so that you're going to be blown away like I was when I'm walking to this little gathering after my program was done. I had seen so many examples of God's reigning that I really couldn't take full pride in the moment without saying, I just feel gratitude to the king. Because I knew it wasn't something in any way on my own power, with my own resources, with my own abilities, I could have done. And that's not a bad thing, that's just truth. So God, in 1 Samuel 10, shows it to Prince Saul. And he lists three things. One involves donkeys... One involves bread, and one involves the Spirit. And really, all the way through verse 16, Samuel explains to Saul, God's going to do this, he's then going to do this, he's then going to do this, and then the rest all the way to 16, he does the first one, he does the second one, and he does the third one. He's not waiting a long time. The first is... These donkeys, verse 2, when you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you. If you remember from chapter 9, which might be hard to do with all the details and the passing of time since then, Saul was looking for his father's donkeys. There was a problem he needed fixed. And God said, I haven't found for you. Don't worry about it. The second sign is bread. Remember, if you remember from chapter 9, there was an offering that they were to give and they had no bread. Verse 3, Samuel says to Saul, then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Like, look at the specifics. Three men going, I'm not four, not two, three. Three men going up to God at Bethel. We'll meet you there. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. Imagine 
Saul, as he walks and he threes the, sees the figures of three, and he's trying to remember, who, wh- how many loaves of bread? Like, you got to be kidding me, right? The donkeys are found, and now three guys approach with the exact details that Samuel had promised from the Lord. Verse 4, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. If the donkeys was solving a problem, the bread was God giving a provision. Both of those were needs that Saul felt in chapter 9. And God gave those. He fixed the problem. He provided the provision. Well, finally, powers. Verse 5, after that you shall come to Gibeath Elohim where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with all their instruments prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. That's loaded with interesting things to think about. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Look at those three signs. God resolves his problem, declaring that he will be the one to care for you. God provides provision, declaring he will be the one to provide for you. And God empowers you. Saul, saying he is the one who gives you your power and authority. Now, when all that happened, I'm assuming way more than I felt, I'm hoping Saul felt some kind of, I may have the title, prince, which comes with some level of authority, but I have no question who the actual king is. Now let's think hard about what this text teaches us. I think the main thrust of these first 16 verses is that God makes clear that he is the true king. Hear that this morning. But that also means that all other human rulers are his vice regents. They're lower level authorities holding an office that is subservient to his own. What does that teach us, even as we try to live in this world? One would be that no human ruler, none, no matter how powerful or privileged, is the actual king. Only God is. Guys, people need to know this and believe this. That makes it tricky when we live in nations like ours, or pick one, where there are human rulers who claim authority and have a level of governing authority, which even then, Scripture, like Romans 13 would say, is given to them by the true king. That means that Christians must walk a fine line as they are in, but not fully of, the world. They are in a human kingdom, but they are ultimately citizens of the kingdom of God. This means we need to guard our hearts and maybe even guard our allegiance 
The Pledge of Allegiance was really written, it's argued, in 1892. When you think about it, that wasn't that long ago. Well after, more than a century after America had already existed. It was soon in, promoted in some children's magazines and a local school began to say it every morning, and especially with the onslaught of World War II and other issues facing our country, every local school has now said the Pledge of Allegiance probably since most of our lifetimes that we can remember. It's interesting, when you go back to 1892, there were numerous Christians that struggled with the Pledge of Allegiance. These weren't communists. Not at all. These were people that loved this country and saw it as a gift of God. What they struggled with was not that they didn't want to support their country. They struggled with that dual allegiance that they felt. They struggled. They're like, wait a second. I totally love my country and am thankful for it and should be. But man, that word allegiance is strong. Like, I don't know if I can pledge allegiance in a full sense. Temporary allegiance? partial allegiance, but I, I, I feel this mix. How can I declare allegiance to any ultimate kingdom or king other than God? Some Christians try to resolve that by not just having a pledge of allegiance to an American flag, but a Christian flag. So at least allegiance was said to both. Now, I'm not trying to say one way or another what's right, good, or proper. I'm just giving a little descriptive history. But notice that tension felt by our brothers and sisters 130 years ago. They knew that they were kingdom citizens first. American citizens second. The same issue happened with Christians under king rule in Britain or India, or places in China. This has happened in every country around the world. We're not alone in that. But they felt that challenge. Wait a second. I know I have a ruler, and I know there's some mission involved, and God even commands me to honor the authorities he placed in front of me, but he's the one who put them there. My ultimate and true allegiance is Jesus Christ. They felt that allegiance was a religious act. Submit for leaders, for sure. Pray for leaders, absolutely. Obey laws, support, fight when needed, absolutely. But allegiance, that feels like an act of worship. Can I do that? Isn't that what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were asked to do? You and I need to live wisely in the tension of these competing kingdoms. And at least be aware, even from 1 Samuel 10, man, God is the king. And I'm aware of that tension. You and I should feel that tension. Even though we rightly engage in the common good in our country and vote for elected officials, we believe will be the most at producing what is true and good and right, yet we know that even they are vice regents, princes, not the true king. But maybe ultimately what this text is trying to say is that the Bible will slowly reveal that one day 
there would be a human king who would also be the true divine king. Man, the story of the Bible, I mean, when you, if you just took 1 Samuel 10 and just kind of flew 30,000 feet above Genesis to Revelation, it's this beautiful story about God being king and the, it, God's people wanting human king, but God, the divine king, was like, I'm your king. I'm the one that's providing anything. These guys are puppets in my kingdom giving them what they wanted and showing them that that was never going to be the human king that would serve them, love them, be the rightful king. So that when you get to the beginning of the New Testament, what we celebrate at Christmas, what do you hear? You hear the story of the coming king who was not just fully God, but he was the human king they long wanted and they totally rejected him. His exaltation was on a cross with purple garb around him and a crown of thorns on his head. And in every known language in the ancient world, it said the word king right above his head. Because that's a king that doesn't serve himself. That's a king that doesn't hold on to power. That's a king who dies for his kingdom. That's the story the Bible tells. So remember that, brothers and sisters, even as we started this morning. But what's that burden you came in with this morning? What's that feeling you feel at times where you might say, hey, Mickey, I liked hearing a couple times back in 02 to 05 when God kind of opened some doors and made some things happen. But in my last three years, God's been silent. It feels like this king doesn't care about me. He doesn't even know that I have this need. I'm great at work for you. But where is this king in my life? And all I would say is when you look at this king, he is a king that has already died for you. There should be no question that even if his sovereign providential purposes don't fully line up with what you would wish and when you would wish it, that he is a good king who serves his people. And you can trust him even as you must submit to him. Well, the text ends with something like the coronation. Verses 17 to 27. But Samuel's coronation is a bit of a judgment on God's people. Verse 17, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. So it's not me speaking, it's God. And are you ready for this? God says, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Like basically, I've given you everything. Provision, problems fixed, powers available. But today, you have rejected your God. How would you like that to be said by a prophet of the Lord? Today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and all your distresses. And you have said to him, set a different king over us. There is no harsher statement that you will see in Scripture of a people that fail to trust God as king in all of Scripture. And yet God gives those people 
the king that they want. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes. Here's your king. See, God has rightly interpreted the actions of his people as adopting the world's values of power and craving for it themselves. Even as God's own covenant people, they were, instead of taking the provision, the power, the problem solving that God had already shown them, they rejected that and said, I want the provisions that the world offers. Brothers, we are tempted to do the exact same thing. We are tempted to trust in our own abilities or the systems of this world rather than God as king. We do that personally in our own lives. We do that collectively as American Christians for example, have pursued worldly powers and baptized it as Christians. How are we to pursue human flourishing and engage in this world without rejecting God? Well, I think one way is we discipline ourselves to make God the ruler and in whom we actually trust. We make God the ruler. No matter what the climate looks like in every election season, in regarding to human politics, it'll ramp up. And even then, we should be gathering and praying to the true king, knowing whatever prince is put there is subservient to him. And we work hard to reject the world's vision for power and security and success. And that's hard to do. Here's what Israel, these are my words. Here's what Israel was saying. We need a human representative who is strong, a warrior, who will give us great financial excess, who will protect us, God's words, that was my job. Have we fallen to the same error of our forefathers and mothers in the old covenant Israel by trusting in human kings who are mere princes of the great king? Our text ends with a bit of comic relief. Even after Saul received ridiculous three signs that God was king and that he was merely a regent, Saul, like the people he has been assigned to lead, does not trust God and runs and hides. Look at verses 21 and 22. They're bringing up all the tribes. Who is the king to be? They brought up the tribe of Benjamin. They brought up the clan within Benjamin. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. Again, providence. The exact one God said was the one chosen. Middle of verse 21. But when they sought him, he could not be found. What does a six foot something guy hide with a bunch of people? Average height was probably five feet. So they inquired of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, I love this. Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. He jumped behind the water heater. He's hiding in the utility closet, ducking behind a vacuum. Behold, Israel, your king. If anything, that's a prophecy of what is to come. Christians, let this not be us. Let us be people who know that God is king. 
And I say that not just in regarding to human politics and human governments, all of that is good and true. And I think the last few years have showed us we have a lot of growth to know what it means to make God's kingdom great again. But even besides that, let me say this to you as I started. What is that issue with which you're struggling with this morning? What's that burden? The real one. The one that, if you talked about, you might not be able to stop the tears. Like the real thing. Not, not, the, not the little stuff that we all have, but the one that you're dealing with. Well, let me remind you what this text says today. That the same God who created every little molecule that exists in all the universe so also he sustains it by his perfect power and authority. And has promised, not only displayed it by the way that he's already given his life so that you may have a share in his, but has declared to the Apostle Paul that we are to know that in all things, in all things, not some, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That's you who've been called according to his purpose. That's God's plan. And maybe, unlike Israel, unlike even Saul, don't reject God as your king, but trustingly submit to his sovereign power, his purposeful timing, even when it doesn't feel like he's answered. Because even by doing so, you declare in word and deed that he alone is king. Not just of all the human kingdoms, but even of your little life and home. Let's pray. Father, be with us as we try to be people who trust in the king. Who make your kingdom great who trust in you with difficulties that are beyond our pay grade. Father, I pray for the man or the woman or the young person here today who is so burdened with something that they feel like, God, you've been silent, that maybe they've even thought the thoughts that you don't care or don't know or are powerless to act. And I pray that 1 Samuel 10 has declared to them, you are the God of all power, and all provision, and all problem-solving. But you are also the king who commands, and we trust and obey. Help us to trust, even when it seems like you're silent. Help us, when things are going well, to make you the king over all other kings, and help us, when things are going poorly, to trust in your perfect providence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.